And gents, good to see you. Hope you had a good summer. I certainly did. Sure did miss you guys around 5 o'clock every Thursday morning. I want you to know I just so sorry I had to sleep in this summer. Just really got to me. Well, you know this Bible study, for those of you who haven't joined us before, I want to tell you a little bit about it. Some Bible studies require homework. That's a joke at Amen Bible Study. We give you all these nice reading assignments, and we know you don't read them. So you just come on anyway, it doesn't matter. Some Bible studies require very intimate sharing. Looking at this group, we know that's a joke too. So we don't require any intimate sharing. You just keep it to yourself if you don't mind. Some Bible studies require intelligence. We'll go on to the next one. Some Bible studies require Bible knowledge. All we require is you know the difference between this and this. That's about it. Some Bible studies require moral character. We've got Robert Taylor. That's the story there. So, here's all that we require. You don't complain about the food. You eat your bananas and your bagels and sit down and don't say anything about it. And the second thing is, if the guy next to you is snoring and disturbing the crowd, you wake him up. Just give him a punch. That's all. Those are the only two requirements. It's uh, great to be here to study such a wonderful book. We, in the years past, we've studied Romans and Genesis and Exodus and John and Ephesians, and we thought we'd pick an easy book this year. I told our congregation, if anybody knows anything about this book, email me and let me know, uh, because we've all been stumped by Revelation through the years. And I tell you what, we're going to be stumped some more. <laughs> But what, what, we, what we want to do is to get a feel for the book. And I, what I hope is, I guess my bottom line in terms of Bible study this year, is if we can go through these months together and study Revelation, and by the end of this time you feel like you've got that book as part of your Bible that you feel comfortable picking up and reading and benefiting from, we've been successful together. And that's my goal is for Revelation to become your friend. And the reason it's not your friend is the same reason it sometimes hasn't been my friend. It is so doggone confusing. And uh, there are so many theories about what everything in Revelation means. And you've got these you know, fire and smoke and trumpets and weird beasts and fat ladies sitting on seven hills in chapter 17, all this stuff going on. And, we, and everybody's got their theory about exactly what this means. It means that Jesus is coming back tomorrow at 4.07 p.m. and all this kind of thing. And you've got so many theories out there that you've got to work through that it it takes you weeks before you can ever really get down to what the book is actually saying, just to take the theories that are contemporary in our own age. Well, I want you to, if you look at your outline that we've given you in your notebooks, you will notice that, I mean, we're we're going to go right through the book. We're going to be looking at, at every chapter, and we're going to be looking at some of these technical issues, and we're going to be looking at all the perspectives, but we're not going to spend all of our time there, but we're going to spend some of our time there. For example, if you look at December the 2nd, you'll see that on that day it's going to be somewhat tactical because there are four, through the 2,000 years that people have been studying Revelation, there are four basic frameworks uh, by which one may interpret Revelation. And by the time we get to that part in our study, up to chapter 4, we're going to need to know what those are. We're not going to talk about it now. We're, in fact, we're going to get right into the book here in just a minute. But we're going to take those technical issues as they come along, and we're, we're not going to uh, spend all of our time on it because then Revelation won't be your friend. What would be your friend are people who are talking about Revelation. We want Revelation to be your friend. You'll look, you'll look also in April, April 21st, when we get to the millennium in chapter 20. If you, if you came to this study so that you could find out what this one person thinks about the millennium, you're going to have to wait until April. <laughs> and then we'll look at the four popular views of the millennium and whether Jesus is coming before the millennium, after the millennium, or, or whatever. So we will look at those, uh, those disputed aspects of the study of Revelation. But what we're going to spend most of our time doing is looking at what we know about Revelation and where we find really common agreement. And um, there's a lot where there's common agreement and it gets us to the meat of the book. And so I don't want you to be too thrown off by all the interpretations that you've heard about Revelation, including mine. G.K. Chesterton one time said, of all the strange beasts that John ever envisioned 
He never envisioned any so strange as his own commentators. <laughs> and so there are some strange beasts out there interpreting Revelation. You have to watch out for them. What we're going to do is make this book our friend, and we're going to get to its, its main issue. We're going to see that the book of Revelation is actually a very practical book. It was practical in its own day, and it is a practical book today. And uh, we're going to see that it's a book that's meant to make a huge difference in your life and my life. To that end, let's get into it, see what it's saying. We're going to look at the first three verses today. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What is this all about? Well, let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. Three verses today. That ought to be easy enough, huh? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant, John, who testifies to everything He saw. That is, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. All right, first thing I want you to notice in the very first word, here's, here's, here's how slow we're going to go today. The first word, we're going to see that the book of Revelation is a revelation. Well, duh. Well, you know what? You need, to, you need to stop and think for just a minute. The first word, the revelation, that's one word in Greek, apocalypsis, for which we get the word apocalyptic. So it just says the revelation. And the, the book of Revelation is a revelation. What do I mean by that? First of all, it uncovers something hidden. The word revelation in the Greek, apocalypsis, means to uncover something. Just take the lid off. And that's kind of what the book of Revelation is going to do for us. It just takes the lid off and lets us look and see some things that were previously unknown to us or would be unknown to us uh, without the Word of God. Now, when you think of the word revelation uh, in theological terms, there are two ways in which we think about God revealing Himself to us. One is in the realm of nature, and uh, that's called natural revelation. And uh, you can look outside uh, when the sun comes up and you can see the trees and the grass. You can hear the birds chirping. And what the Apostle Paul teaches us is that when we look at creation, we become very aware that there is a God who has eternal power and a God who is. So God is and He has power. And the creation itself reveals that to us. So we have a lot in common with everybody around the world. And if they do not believe in a God, nor believe that He made what is before us, they are suppressing the obvious, says the Apostle Paul. It's by unrighteousness in our own hearts that we suppress the obvious. So the obvious that's revealed in creation, there is a God. So what Paul is saying is that atheism is logically impossible. It's only by wicked suppression of the obvious that anyone would claim to be an atheist, or, or really even an agnostic for that matter. So we have revelation... All around us, you can look around these tables and here are human bodies and spirits in those bodies. Look at the mystery of the human being. And Paul is saying that tells you there's a God and that He's very powerful and that He is a Creator. So His being as Creator is made obvious in the natural realm. But now there are some things that you cannot know simply by observing creation. And these things that you need to know that you can't know just through science are the things called special revelation. They're the things that are revealed to us in the Scriptures specifically and through the years have been revealed to us through the apostles, the prophets, the miracles of God where God has broken through the created realm, the natural realm, and has made Himself known to us supernaturally. This is called special revelation. And this is the kind of revelation that the Apostle John is talking about here. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is revealing something. He's taking the lid off, showing us something that we could not learn from the natural realm. And that is what the nature of the Bible is. For example, we know that God is and we know He's Creator by looking at the natural revelation. But you don't know by looking at outdoors that God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one being. You don't know that by looking at, at nature. 
You have to have the Bible reveal that to you. Take the lid off and show you something about God's character. Uh, You don't know by looking outside that Jesus Christ came to earth and that He was fully God and fully man. In other words, the incarnation. The great mystery of the incarnation that Christians believe. You wouldn't know that by looking at creation. You have to have special revelation. The lid has to be taken off of history and of the very nature of Christ. You wouldn't know by looking at nature that uh, there's a way to heaven and you can go there. It's called salvation. You wouldn't know that you could be saved from the penalty of your sin by looking at creation. You have to have special revelation for that. The lid has to be taken off. And this is what John is saying. First of all, that the book of Revelation is one of those books of the Bible. It's one of the 67. 66, thank you. Uh, (laughs) Pastor, you really ought to know how many books are in the Bible, you know what I mean? Hey, look, I started this thing by saying you don't have to know a whole lot. That includes me. Uh, So you got 66 books of the Bible. It's one of the 66 where this very thing is happening, that God is revealing something that you will not find in the natural realm. You've got to have the Bible for that. That's the reason your Bible is so important. The very things that enable you to live a meaningful life in the midst of this creation, the very thing that enables you to get through this life into heaven are revealed in the Bible, not in creation itself. Creation is just enough to get you real good and guilty and feeling miserable about yourself. You know there's a God, but you know that you're out of sorts with Him. The creation can reveal that to you, but it can't get you home, either mentally or physically one day at the end. But the Bible does that, and Revelation is one of those books. But now... There's a, there's a second meaning to this idea of the revelation. When he says the, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he also means it is written in the apocalyptic genre. Those of you who are literature students know what the word genre means. Uh, poetry is a genre. It's a type of literature. Uh, nar- historical narrative is a type of literature. It's a genre. Uh, or... Most of Paul's thing, well, all of Paul's uh, writings are letters. So letters are a genre of writing. Uh, You have wisdom literature like uh, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. That's a genre. Or you have prophecies. That's a genre of literature. So there are different genres in the Scriptures. And what you have to realize about Revelation, ah, this is a peculiar genre. And when you're studying literature and trying to figure out what it means to you, you must know what genre you're dealing with. For example, if, if uh, the Bible says, God is a rock, kind of go, well, I don't know if that makes me very happy or not. I, I thought God was more than a rock, you know. Well, what genre are we talking about? We're talking about poetry. And what does poetry do? It uses images. So God, God is like a rock in the sense that he's, he's immovable, he's strong. So it doesn't mean he's literally a rock. You have to know the genre that you're dealing with. Now, if you're in a historical narrative and some doofus says, well, I ran upon God and it was a rock right there in the road. Well, now you know he's saying God is literally a rock. It's a historical narrative genre. But So you study all literature, and especially biblical literature, according to its genre. And what we find out from the very first word of this book is, watch out, boys. This is not like the book right before it which is a letter. This is a letter, but it's a particular type of genre. It's a letter and it's apocalyptic literature. Now, uh, what do we mean by that? Well, it's very interesting. You wouldn't pick this up necessarily in our English translations, but if you were to look at the original languages, you would find some tremendous parallels between uh, Revelation 1.1, this very first verse, and Daniel 2, these verses listed here you'll find that he uses, for example, in these verses in Daniel, the word apocalyptic comes up five times. Now, you realize the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But around the 2nd century B.C., it was all translated into Greek. Why? Well, because the Greek culture was dominant by the 2nd century B.C. So we, And this is a great gift to us because what it does then, it provides a linguistic link between the Old and the New Testaments, even though they're written in two different languages, Hebrew and the Old, Greek and the, and the New, because we had the Greek language dominant in 2nd century B.C. and got our Old Testament translated, now we understand more clearly what some Hebrew words mean that we probably would never have figured out. 
But in 2nd century B.C., they were telling us what they meant because they gave us a Greek translation of it. It's a great gift. It also means that when we're looking in the New Testament, we find a word in Greek, we can go back and see what the apostles themselves were thinking because they used the Septuagint, the Greek translation, as well as the Hebrew. So, they, so we're, we're, we're aware that they were very familiar with both Hebrew and Greek translation of the Old Testament and used it freely, especially in writing in Greek in the New Testament. So we can now connect Old and New Testament fairly tightly. And so in Daniel, we find the word apocalyptic used over and over again. We find, we'll, we'll see that he mentions here uh, the concept of coming quickly or the time is near. And those concepts you also find in these verses in the, in the Greek translation. So John is obviously consciously conjuring up something from the very early chapters and verses of Daniel, which is another signal to his hearers, hey guys, I'm getting ready to do something very similar to the book of Daniel. So he's showing us signaling us right from the beginning that it's going to be an apocalyptic genre. We'll talk more about what that means in a few moments. Now it's very interesting that in Revelation there are 404 verses. And in those 404 verses, you will find 518 references to other verses in the Bible. You say, there are more references to the other parts of the Bible than there are verses. Exactly. It's chock full of verses primarily from the Old Testament. You've got, uh, you've got uh, Daniel and Ezekiel and Psalms, Exodus, and Isaiah. Those are probably the top five books that John is he's just immersed in the Old Testament and it just comes out of him. So, obviously, in interpreting this book, we've got to understand it's a unique genre and there were other books like this that were non-canonical, non-biblical books that help us understand the genre. And he's immersed in the Old Testament. So we ought to expect that we can look at contemporary apocalyptic genre to understand a little bit about how this whole type of literature works. And we can also look at the Old Testament to find out exactly what it is John's trying to say. So we've got some tremendous sources to help us understand Revelation. You're saying, oh, I don't know a whole lot about the Old Testament. I don't know anything about apocalyptic genre. Well, we'll pull out a few things as time goes on. But just be aware that if we're going to understand Revelation, we've got to go back in our minds 2,000 years ago and say, what was John using as his sources and what would the people have been familiar with as sources? And it'd be like his, you know, doing something in our own age and referring to something that was very contemporaneous to us either on TV or in literature. But now the interesting thing is that all, of all these 518 references, not one time does he make a direct quotation of the Bible. Not once. When I, when I came to understand this, I was shocked. I, I, I started going back through the chapters of Revelation. I thought, surely there's a direct quotation here. No, there's not. What he's doing is he's rephrasing everything. And it, it really is a picture of how I think the Christian life ought to be lived. We, we know the Bible. We don't have to quote verses directly. It just comes out. Of it. Our blood is bibline. It just comes out of us. And we may put it in the Sandy Wilson translation, but there it is because we know the Word. And that's the way it is with John. And so in order for us to understand what Revelation is all about, we're going to have to be aware of some historical background. Now, gentlemen, that is the reason that for those... 5% of you who actually know what the word homework means, um, you will find an Amen Bible study reading list. And on this list, uh, we have put in, probably in an order that's going to be helpful to you in studying the next week's lesson, chapters, one chapter a day, that's not heroic now, come on, admit it, one chapter a day uh, out of the Bible, a lot of it from these very books I mentioned. So you are going to have weird symbols and images and ideas just flowing out of your ears by the time this year is up, sprinkled with some other passages that are a little easier to understand. But seriously, uh, we, want, we want you to be reading through Revelation. And you don't, have to read, you don't have to stop with the reading list we've got here. You can go on and keep reading. But you'll see that we put a lot of the chapters of Revelation early on in the reading list. We put a few chapters from Daniel in there. If you want to, read, go ahead and read the whole thing of Daniel. It won't take you that long but at least read these chapters and you'll find that this imagery that you're going to find in Revelation, you're going to find in other parts of the Bible and the, sometimes the key to understanding what John is saying in Revelation is to understand what was going on in the Old Testament. 
All these images, these weird things you're going to find in Revelation, they, they almost all come out of the Old Testament. So John is calling up some familiar images. Now, it's very interesting when you look at the position of Revelation in your Bible. It's the last book, isn't it? Uh, some of you just figured that out this, this morning. Uh, it's the last book. If you're still turning the pages, it's in, it's in the very end there. Right before the part that says weights and measures, you just pull over a little bit to the left. And you're good. Revelation's the last book in the Bible. And uh, you say, now, why would God send off this great book with a, with a little book like that one? It just leaves me in massive confusion. Well, even though we have said that the whole idea of Revelation is to take the lid off, and it is, and Revelation does, uh, Eugene Peterson in his, his uh, great commentary, which is a kind of a literary commentary on Revelation, it's not the primary one I'd recommend to you, but it's called Reverse Thunder. He says that if you look at Revelation and try to find something new in it that's not revealed elsewhere in the Bible, you'll, you'll be frustrated because there's nothing new in terms of information in the book of Revelation. Anything of significance, any doctrine, any truth you need to know, you'll find it elsewhere in the Bible. So you say, now why, why do we need Revelation? Here's what Peterson says. He says, what you need is not new information. What you need is a revived imagination. And what Revelation is going to do for us, hopefully, is bring that book back to us and enable us to revive our own imaginations. You say, I was looking for some practical help today. What are you talking about, my imagination? Do you realize, Pastor, it's 6 o'clock in the morning? How do you have your imagination at 6 o'clock in the morning? Well, this is the whole key. You can have imagination at 6 o'clock in the morning and all day long. And when I look around the church today, the church that I know in North America, and I compare it to other churches around the world that I've had some experience with, here's the problem I find in the church in the West. There's a lack of imagination. There's a lack of passion. There's a lack of intentionality. There's a lack of a willingness to sacrifice. There's a mortality, gangrene, that has set into the Western church that needs to be arrested. And what Eugene Peterson is saying, I think he's exactly right, the book of Revelation is meant to arrest us. I can remember years ago as a little kid uh, sitting in the back seat of the car and I'm amazed I even remember this conversation. But I remember my mother was talking to somebody. She was in the driver's seat and she was in the grocery store parking lot. We we're getting ready to leave. And of course, I was eager to leave. That's probably the reason I was listening, thinking, how long is this conversation going to go on? And my mother was talking to another woman who was leaning inside the window and talking about somebody whose marriage was breaking up. And a woman, and they, they were kind of gossiping about the woman just a little bit. And my mother said to the other woman, you know what that woman needs? Just a little bit of religion. I remember that comment. What that woman needs is a little bit of religion. Gentlemen, the problem in the church today is we've got a little bit of religion. We've got what my mother was talking about, and it's dang near killed us. And a little bit of religion will kill you, will kill your wife, your children, and everybody around you. A little bit of self-righteousness, a little bit of an inflated ego, a little bit of the liturgy, a little bit of thinking that you know something about God is enough to kill you. And what John does with the book of Revelation is to kill a little bit of religion and say to you, that ain't going to work. This is much bigger than you ever thought. And that's what's supposed to happen to us this year together, is that we all get the big picture. We all get arrested by this revelation of the awesome power of God. And I was looking in the newspaper just the other day about Ivan the Terrible making his way up Alabama right now. And uh, they were showing the, the weight per square foot that was exercised by a hurricane in each of the categories. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, when you got to Category 5, it was almost like 200 pounds per square foot or something like that. And I was thinking about, you know, what would it be like if, I mean, someone like myself, who's just a, a little bit over 200 pounds, uh, 
were standing on every square foot of my roof. That roof would not survive, needless to say. Or what if there were, you know, if I took my, my roof, you know, let's say it's 30 by 30, you know, what's that, 900 square feet. You got 1,000 big fat Wilsons hanging on it, pulling on it like this. That roof's coming off. And that's just one little, little spot where a hurricane exercises its force. That hurricane is awesome. And you have 1.2 million people fleeing out of New Orleans, trying to get out of the Big Easy. Most people are trying to get into the Big Easy. They're trying to get out of the Big Easy. And you have all these Marines and Naval officers up here flying their airplanes, getting them out of Pensacola, bring them up here to Memphis. And you have lots of reactions to this hurricane, but one reaction you don't have is boredom. You ever notice that? There was nobody in New Orleans who was bored this week. And there were very few people who were lazy this week. Everybody got to move on. Got their big fat butts out of their chairs and did something for a change. And what the book of Revelation is to do is to be like Ivan the Terrible, is to say this is a massive thing. And no more sitting around. And what this calls for is getting up and taking action because you have a massive force that's in our presence and that is you can already feel the gale winds and the eye of the hurricane is approaching you and it requires action. So what we're going to see is this book is meant to be ours. It's meant to give us a real experience of the living God for whom a hurricane is a spit in the ocean. He throws off hurricanes to the right and the left anytime he wants to. A hurricane cannot be compared to the power of God. And a book that will not only get us on the move, but give us a living experience of His greatness in our own lives. Now, we'll also find the book of Revelation is taking the lid off in its apocalyptic genre. The reason it's written this way is to inspire us, to inspire our imaginations, to get us on the move, and also to give us that great sense of peace that passes all understanding no matter what your difficulties. I was sitting at the table with, with Harry and some other guys this morning, and some of you know Harry lost his son this summer. And I told him this morning, I just can't imagine having the grace of God to deal with that. I know he'd give it to me if I needed it, and I know he gave it to Harry. But here you have this massive tragedy you know, that happens in our lives. What's the answer for this? Well, Harry, Harry's already got the answer. He told me at, at the table. The answer is, this, this is going to work out in the end. I'm going to see him again. It's just hard getting from here to there. That's all. But we're going to be together again. And he happened to have a very fine son, uh, a kid who really was doing wonderful things in the kingdom. Harry's going to see him again. This book is going to inspire your imagination so that you not only have that doctrine logged, you know, among other principles in your life, and you can kind of access it when you want it. It's not going to just be logged in the computer. It's going to be a vital, life-transforming principle in your life that changes the way you look at everything. So what the revelation wants to do in your life is to change everything. Change the way you look at everything. Change the way you react to every circumstance so that you do act, but you also react in the proper way. So we're going to find that the point is not new information. The point is a revived imagination. Now, I'm gonna, I'd like to suggest for just a few moments that we look at some principles of interpretation. And these are probably good to put up front. If we're talking about a revelation, how do you interpret a revelation? We're told that, that the revelation is a revelation. So what do you do with it? Well, the first thing I want to suggest to you, and I, first of all, I want to talk about just principles in general. And I'm just going to put, give you five basic principles about interpreting the Bible. And then I'm going to look at some peculiar principles for, for interpreting a peculiar genre called apocalyptic. First of all, in biblical interpretation, use common sense. You know, if you're reading a letter from the Apostle Paul, it's a letter. And read it like a letter and listen to it. And use your common sense. Paul is living in real circumstances, writing to real people in real circumstances. And so you just use your noggin. That sounds very simple, but I tell you honestly, and looking at some of these beast, uh, beastly commentators, you, you realize they're not, they're not using common sense. Secondly, determine the author's intent. This is where Christian 
interpretation is different, say, from Islamic interpretation. Let me tell you what I mean. I was just talking to two very well-informed Muslims uh, this past week, and we were talking about the difference between the doctrine of inspiration of scriptures among the Christians and uh, contrary to that among the Muslims. Now, in the Muslim understanding of the inspiration, so to speak, of the Quran, uh, the angel Gabriel dictated to Muhammad, allegedly, what goes in the Quran. So it's a dictation mode of inspiration. The angel gives it to Muhammad and he takes every word and writes it out. Christian view of the inspiration of the Bible is quite different. And it's very significant. We do not believe in the dictation mode of inspiration. We believe in the confluence of divine inspiration and human intention. And they're like two streams of a river that come together. And God oversees the whole thing and we end up with what He wants us to have. But it includes human intentionality. And gentlemen, that's the reason that you can't just open your Bible and pick a verse and say, oh, I'll read that verse and then, and then start interpreting. No, you have, to, you have to back up to the first of that book and understand what is this whole book about? which will tell me what is the author getting at? What's his driving intention? Why do I need to know that? Because the Lord used that author's intention to state his intention. Confluence of divine and human. That's the reason the Bible study is so important. You can't just jerk a verse out and just use your imagination that's unrooted from the historical reality of its original intent and figure out what God is saying to you. In order for you to know what God is saying to you, you need to know what the author intended to say to his original hearers. That is, what did it mean to the first hearers? This is vital, especially in the study of Revelation. Some of these kinky interpretations that I've read about Revelation could not possibly have been what the first hearers thought it meant. Do you think that they thought that these grasshoppers were helicopters when there were no such things? I mean, there has to be original intent, and we have to figure out what was John trying to say and what did the first hearers likely hear? And that's what I need to hear. That's a big clue to understanding any part of the Bible, but especially one that's as confusing at times as Revelation. Fourthly, when you're applying it, when you're trying to figure out how do I apply this to my own life, here's what you do. You apply to analogous current circumstances. Okay, here is an analogous current circumstance. You've got a really difficult situation at work. You've got something that's just got you by the hair of the neck and it's about to take you down. Someone called me just two days ago. I've got this situation and I'm just depressed over it. Don't know what to do about it. What? There's an analogous situation. That's exactly the situation to which John was writing. Our guys who are in trouble don't know what to do. The world seems to be overwhelming them. And John says, hey, time out. Let's talk about the big picture. And our Bible study this year is, is described as living in light of the big picture. And if you think you're just living a humdrum existence from you know 8 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock at night, can't wait to punch out, get home and watch the tube and really have a big time, some of you really have a great imagination about how to entertain yourselves. And you do that on Monday, and you get up on Tuesday, 8 o'clock, 5 o'clock, punch out, and I can sit in front of the tube until the wife punches you and wakes you up and says, Honey, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. You fell asleep in your TV chair. And that's the way your life is going. Revelation is going to arrest you. If you've got a problem and you feel like you're just swamped under it, Revelation is going to arrest you. If you are deeply saddened, by a loss or something that's going on in your life, Revelation is going to arrest you, lift your eyes up, and give you the big picture. The key to significance is what guys are looking for. You know, there are all these books written, especially halftime. Maybe I see those because I just passed halftime about 10 years ago, I think. You know, when guys say they're 53 like me and they're in mid, midlife crisis, I'm thinking, you're going to live to 106. That's interesting. <laughs> by the way, you'll know when you hit midlife. You'll ask, 
where's the action so that you know where you don't want to go? <laughs> last night, <laughs> last night, you know, you, we got all these, uh, these, all, these naval and marine officers, my son being one of them, who came up from Pensacola, and uh, they, they report to me that down, if any of you were downtown, I mean, Beale Street was just, it was the Marines and the Navy. I mean, everywhere you go, every bar, everything. And I mean, it was just, it was a happening place. And I was thinking, thank God I avoided that, you know. <laughs> and so I hit midlife because I want to know, where's the action so I can stay away from it? Well, if you find your life kind of like that, you know, Revelation is going to arrest you and say there's some real action going on. Let me tell you about it. Let me give you the view that tells you about it and then get you to engage it. So we'll take our own circumstances that are just like the circumstances to which John was writing and we'll say, what does this letter mean to us? And if you'll study this letter carefully, this uh, apocalyptic letter, you will discover that it does give you the answer to significance. We know that we want significance instead of success. That's what all these midlife books are about but they're not even giving us the right answer. They're suggesting, oh, you need a job change. Oh, you need to back off and just work half-time. You need to develop your golf game or this, that, or the other. Or sometimes they'll suggest, oh, you need to leave this and go into ministry. No. What Revelation is going to show you is that you're already in the ministry and what you need to do is get the big picture and live the little details of today in light of the grand picture. Some uh, years ago, a friend of mine uh, who's just kind of these do-everything type of guy. You know, I don't know how to describe what he does. He just does a little bit of everything. And he loves to hike and kayak and climb mountains. And, and uh, this was back in 1983, and I still have the article here. The, uh, the reporter asked my friend, now, why do you do all this stuff? You know, why do you go up the top of Mount McKinley? Why do you hike all these mountains? And he, he had a, in his billfold, he had an old crumpled up sort of poem or saying from a Frenchman named René Dumas. And here, here's what it said. And he just handed it to the reporter and said, this is my answer to you. And here's what it says. You cannot stay on the summit forever. You have to come down again. So why bother in the first place? Just this. What is above knows what is below. But what is below does not know what is above. One climbs, one sees, one descends. One sees no longer, but one has seen. There is an art of conducting one's life in the lower regions by the memory of what one saw higher up. What one can no longer see, one can at least still know. So why do you climb mountains besides the exercise? You get this grand vista and you look down that dirty little village and you have a very different perspective on it than you did when you were in that dirty little village. And you go back to that dirty little village and instead of just seeing the, the tumbleweed going down the middle of the street or the trash on the side of the road, you remember in your head what that street looked like from 15,000 feet. And you're living in that dirty little village with the view of what's all around you because you've seen it. Gentlemen, that is what your life needs in order to bring significance and that's exactly what John's going to do for you by the power of the Holy Spirit in this revelation. Then, fifthly, use the analogy of Scripture. That is, look, if you think you have some harebrained idea about what Revelation means, it'd do you a lot of good to check it out by the Pauline epistles and by the Gospels and by the Old Testament. It'd do you a whole lot of good if you check it out by the rest of Scripture. So be very careful when you're dealing with a, a genre like poetry or especially apocalyptic. It's a little weird and fantastic. Be very careful about the kind of detailed implications that you're drawing from that. And it's amazing to me, these people have these time charts, you know? And they'll, the, most of their verses that, that give them the authority to say these things are coming from Revelation. I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Watch out. This Revelation, the genre, is to give you a big picture. It's kind of like Impressionism, the, the art of Impressionism. You don't go and say... Well, now look at that nice little detail. Now you, back, you have to back up on an impressionistic piece of art, don't you? You have to back up. And you look at it from a distance. And then, then you see the closer you get to it, the more muddled it gets. And you back up. And you can understand impressionism. Well, it's the same thing with some movies. Some movies are quite detailed and scientific and so on. Uh, some of the mystery movies, you have to keep all the pieces together. But there are some movies 
that just give you a sweeping expression, an, an impression, uh, and you walk away with an impression. And you don't say, now what did that little detail mean? What did that little detail mean? You know, it's the impression. That's the reason that my friend Eugene Peterson again calls it, calls Revelation a literary video. A literary video. That's what you need to keep in mind. That is the genre that the Apostle John is using to make his main point, which is wake up, get up, cheer up, and all the rest. Now, principles for interpreting apocalyptic. There are about six things that you need to keep in mind when you're dealing with weird literature like this, all right? First of all, take the genre seriously, not always literally. Revelation 17 says there is a woman on seven hills. Well, that must be a very fat woman or seven very little hills. Obviously, he tells you it's Rome. Rome has seven hills. The big fat harlot is Rome. And then it represents the secular city in general. There's several ways in which you interpret, but you, you take the genre seriously, but not always literally. If you take it literally, you're not taking the genre seriously. Now, does that mean that we don't believe in literal inspiration, that every word is inspired of God? No, we don't mean that. We do, we do believe that. But God is inspiring in a number of human genres with authorial intent. And we have to take the authorial intent seriously and take the genre that they use by their own choice, by God's inspiration, to communicate the truth they want to communicate. Consult the Old Testament apocalyptic for the meaning of symbols. We'll get to that as we get into it. When we see a symbol that looks really weird, we'll say, now where in the world did John get this idea? We'll go back to Ezekiel. We'll go back to Daniel. We'll go to Isaiah. We'll go to Exodus. And we'll find these symbols. And we'll say this is what he was conjuring up because he was dealing with the common knowledge of his hearers and he was conjuring up stuff. It would be like using Seinfeld or you know, Saturday Night Live or using all these skits and he just, you know, stuff that's in our head and the author would conjure it up because it's common knowledge. Well, we're going to find that John was speaking to people who had common knowledge. In their case, it wasn't Friends and Saturday Night Live. It was, it was the Bible. Big change today. But we'll find out how he conjured stuff up and we'll identify the symbols. And sometimes he identifies the symbols himself. Consider the vision as a whole. Some of the beastly commentators make their big mistakes because they get immersed in details first in an impressionistic work of art instead of standing back and seeing what the work is all about, then go back and talk about, now how did the artist do this? Instead of saying, well, oh, the artist did there. Well, that must mean this. No, back up. And let's get, a, let's get a look at the whole. It's very important in apocalyptic literature. Fourthly, don't insist on chronological order. If you do that, you're dead in the water already. You can look in Revelation in several places and you'll find, for example, those of you familiar with it, when we get to the sixth seal, you'll find, whoom, God is giving us this awesome display of the end of time. Then you're going to get to the seventh trumpet. And you say, I thought we were already here at the end of time. Here we go again. Awesome display of the end of time. And then you're going to get to Revelation 19 with Christ coming back on His horse. I thought we were already here. You were. It's a point. Revelation goes, it's like waves on the sea, not these 40-foot waves, but just little waves, coming on the, on the shore and then receding, and then the wave comes again, recedes, and that's what Revelation does. And that's perfectly legitimate in the genre he's using. It's not historical narrative. He has perfect right to do whatever he wants to with time. Time is one of the things he'll use to make his point. For example, if you look at your outline that I've given you, and this comes right out of the textbook that I've given you that I know you're going to read page by page, week by week. This is his outline. Basically, I've made some changes. But the general idea, you have the seven churches in scene one, then you have scene two. You see the eight scenes? It's like a play. And each scene is showing us the scope of time from a little bit different perspective. And when you're dealing with this kind of literature, you have to realize the way in which it's laid out. Focus on the main ideas. This is the same way, if you're, for example, interpreting, if you're trying to figure out the meaning of a parable that Jesus tells. If you're, if you're dealing with the prodigal, uh, or let's, let's take the, the Good Samaritan. If you're dealing with the Good Samaritan. You know, some of the commentators in the Middle Ages tried to figure out, now, what were the coins that he gave to the innkeeper? What does that mean? And what does the donkey mean on which the Good Samaritan put the injured man. 
and they get all the details and they forget the whole point. There was really one point. Love your neighbor as yourself. Get the big idea. And when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature, once again, literary video, let's get the big idea. Focus on the main ideas. And then, because of the nature of the literature, this is a Sandy Wilson principle. Sing in a lower key, would you? It's just amazing to me how sure some people can be that they've just got this thing nailed down. We're going to do the best we can, but we're going to sing in a lower key uh, because it takes humility when you're dealing with the Bible in general and certainly a book like this in particular. Okay, so it is the book of Revelation is a revelation. It is also a divine revelation. You'll notice in verse 1, he says that it was given to Jesus Christ by God. Look at this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So look at the order. God, Jesus Christ, from God to his son, to the angel, to John, to us. It comes right straight from God. And the idea is that here when he speaks about uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that can be a subjective or an objective possession there. That is, it can be a revelation that Jesus Christ owned and gave to us, or it can be a revelation about him. And it seems from the context clearly, it's, a, it's a, what we call a subjective genitive. It's a revelation that he owns and gives to us. And so, it's coming from the throne. You get into Revelation 4 and 5 and Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is on the throne. And you want to know where your information comes from about the meaning of history and the end of time? You want to know what your source of information is? It's right from the throne of God. And gentlemen, to get leverage on your life, you've got to get outside of this world. The secularist, it means this world, secularism does, the secularist has no leverage on his life. That's the reason there's no significance to it. Because he can't get outside of this world. The believer in Christ, his mind gets outside this world to the very throne of God and looks back on this little dirty village. And the whole thing begins to make sense from an entirely different perspective. It's a divine revelation. Thirdly, in verse 1, the book is a personal revelation. He says, to show his servants. We're his servants. And you will not be able to suck the nectar out of this flower unless you start with the relational perspective of being a servant of God. You've got to give your life to Him. Otherwise, you will not hear this book correctly. That means cheerful obedience, unwavering loyalty, and useful service. So let's just begin today and say, Lord, I'm going to listen to this book using the best approach I can take to it. I'm going to listen because it comes right straight from You and I'm going to take it as Your Word and I'm going to take it as Your Word to me, one of Your personal servants. That means I will give you cheerful obedience, unwavering loyalty, useful service. Now you're going to get the meaning of this book. You will not without the servant's paradigm. Then in verse 1 and in verse 3, we see the book is an urgent revelation. He says what, about what must soon take place, and he says at the end, for the time is near. So there's an urgency to this. The hurricane is coming. In fact, you, it's already here. You see what he's saying. Daniel talks about things happening at the latter days. The language that John intentionally substitutes for that language is the time is near. So it's no longer the latter days out there. It's that it's already dawned upon us. And what we're going to see in John is he's basically saying it's not that the future is just a little bit out there. He's saying the future has already come. Like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's already being inaugurated by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom is coming. It's come and it's coming. That's what John is saying. And that's part of what Revelation means. It's very applicable for us today. And you know that you know, a thousand years is but a day with the Lord, 2 Peter 3, 8. And then, of course, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. That gives you a clue to what it means for the kingdom to be near. Now, lastly, two things. The book is also a pastoral revelation because in verse 2, the end of verse 1 and verse 2, he says, to his servant John who testifies. Who is John? John is obviously a magnificent poet. Magnificent poet. He's obviously a prophet because this is called a prophecy. It's not just apocalyptic. It's not just a letter. It's a prophecy. It's all three. But he's a pastor. John, you know, we're going to find out later in this chapter, is exiled on the island of Patmos. Where's Patmos? It's out in the Aegean. 
And from the Aegean, you can look back and see Ephesus and Smyrna and the seven cities he's going to address. He is exiled because he's persecuted for the sake of the gospel. He's been preaching Christ. They didn't kill him like they did Peter and Paul. They simply exiled him, made him go out to the island of Patmos where he just stays in basically under house arrest. But from Patmos, you can look back and see these seven cities and John would look at them all the time. And he longed for those people. He knew their distress. And this book is a pastoral letter. And I have to say, unless you look at it as your pastor encouraging you, you won't understand it properly. He's writing to people who are hurting. He's writing to people who are lonely. He's writing to people who are lazy. He's writing to people who are in distress. And he's saying, look, there's some good news here. Let me give you a different approach than you got in the, uh, from the evangelist. Let me give you the big picture that will encourage you to live in light of it. Now, there are some similarities to other apocalyptic, but there are some dissimilarities. And one of them is he gives us his name. In the apocalyptic literature contemporary with John, you get these, you know, the vision of Enoch, vision of Ezra, these Old Testament figures who obviously have long deceased and they would be uh, pseudonymous. They, 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 you wouldn't know who the author was. But in John's case, he gives you the author. There's something very distinctive about this. It's because it's pastoral and he's writing to a particular situation. And this is prophetic. Most of the apocalyptic literature of his own day was just for entertainment. He'll give you a, a, a video that was, since they didn't have movies, they would have literary videos. But John has apocalyptic with a prophetic edge to it. And then lastly, the book is a blessed revelation. He says, the one who reads it, probably intentionally reading it in public, will be blessed. The one who stands at the lectern, the reader for the day, will be blessed if he reads Revelation. The ones who hear it, like the congregation who are hearing the reading of the Scriptures in church, they'll be blessed. In other words, this is the Word of God. And then he says they'll be blessed not only if they have it in their ears, but they take it to heart. That is, literally, they keep it. So what we hear will be blessed by hearing it. And we'll be even more blessed if we keep it. And it becomes part of our outlook and our behavior in life. So gentlemen, this is the big picture. This is what Revelation is all about. And next week, we're going to get into the very heart of it. We're going to start at the heart. Because that's where John starts. It's absolutely thrilling what he's saying about this big picture and the most important element of it that will shape an entire life and not only give it success, but give it the significance that it stars for. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for this wild book that is daunting to us because we find ourselves so far removed from apocalyptic and so far removed from the first century. But Lord, it's a living book. It's a book that we need desperately to arrest us in our sorrows, in our sadness, even in our slothfulness. And we pray to be arrested by the very means that You give us, this grand picture of the meaning of time itself and of the centrality of Jesus Christ and of the blessing that will fall upon Your people as we continue with You. Be with each of these men as they go their way. Lord, help them in their work to live in light of the big picture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents.